The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, November 1st, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Are you familiar with the fear index? The CBOE VIX, that means the Chicago Board Options Exchange Volatility Index. The VIX, it's a calculation of the S&P's options. What it does is it determines what investors expect to happen. The higher the index, the wilder the ride. And near elections, the index, the fear index, tends to spike. And today is a big spiking time. It opened the day at 17. As of this taping, it's above 19. It's almost a 20% increase. And now from our business desk, here's reporter Chris Berube with the final numbers. So the VIX closing price for today is 18.56. That's up one and a half points. All right. Thanks, Chris. Got to cut him off before it goes to housing starts. Oh, housing starts. So the VIX, the fear index, is doing what it does. Only more so in recent days. It does usually spike. This isn't saying that it thinks the market will go up or down necessarily. It's just kind of monitoring the number of bets made around that time and noting that some of the bets are on the upside and some of the bets are on the downside. And the bigger the gap, that tells you the more people are uncertain. Because even if you think... Hillary Clinton is going to win, you hedge against that by betting on stocks that might be affected if Donald Trump wins. So the less likely you think the outcome is, the more you would hedge one way or another. Which gets me to what the prediction models are saying. Now, the upshot in the Daily Coast, they still have Trump's chances of winning at not even 10%. But 538 has him closer to 30% today. I think that is way too optimistic about Trump's chances. Way too pessimistic, 538 is about Hillary. Now, last week, 538 had Trump at about a 15% chance to win. And I think that's where he should be now. The Comey investigation has changed things. The polls were tightening a bit, but still, I think he only has about a 15% chance of winning. So I think in a sense, 538 was right for the wrong reasons, which to an expert may be the same as being wrong, but to a layman seems just right. Here's why I think Trump's chances are lower than 30, but higher than 10. The electoral map is bad. He has no ground game. He's still behind in several swing states that he can't win without. And oh yeah, he's Donald Trump. The the models do not take that into account. Donald Trump's Trumpiness. Also, I don't think 538 takes into account what we know about early voting. The New York Times does. It looked at North Carolina and it says right now that based on early voting, the projection is that Hillary Clinton should win that state by 6%. Donald Trump's going to have a hard time winning if he can't win North Carolina. So anyway, the race has tightened. Her lead is strong. And his argument of a rigged election is still without merit. The fix is not in, though the VIX is up. On the show today, we bring you the tale of one congressional district, New York's 19th, the fight in 19th, and they are fighting. This is an extremely close race, a toss-up, uh, according to the Cook Political Report. The Democrat is Zephyr Teachout. She is a former GIST guest. She was on as a professor of American corruption. Her challenger is a former New York assemblyman who was never on the GIST, but I think he might like the segments on bearers and flags. So we go to the 19th, from Kanajahari to Shangum. It's spelled Shawangunk, but it's pronounced Shangum 
by the locals. It is the 19th. Now, I know we have some just listeners outside the 19th, and you're going to get all jealous about my coverage of the 19th. But trust me, this discussion will be pretty national in scope. We mentioned Trump a lot with each candidate. And I do think I have a good deal of local credibility, what with my deft pronunciation of Sean Gum. There is a toss-up race that I want to talk about. It's New York's 19th, and the reason I've focused on this race is it includes, as the Democratic candidate, the only past guest of the gist that I know of who wasn't officially even a full-time politician when she joined us. Zephyr Teachout is the Democratic candidate for New York's 19th. Hello, Zephyr. How are you? I'm great. Great to be back on the show. Absolutely. How has the national race affected uh, Columbia County and thereabouts? Yeah. So just for your listeners, this is a 11 county district. It's the Hudson Valley and the Catskills. There's a lot of people who have been really angry and you see that anger in both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And in my race, I hear about that in every corner of the district. People are really fed up, honestly, with what's happening in Congress. Some people are fed up with national politics and it's been really important. And uh, I think, you know, we've connected with people throughout the district on this to sort of honor that anger and say, you, you, you're, all these complaints about being shut out, those complaints are legitimate. And let's talk about actually some fundamental change. You know, let's get this, let's get this democracy working, just functioning at all. Um, that's something I hear about a lot. Your opponent, John Faso, is a Trump supporter, though he's tried to characterize his support as he may not even be voting for him, which is the last thing I heard him say. You know, how much of an opportunity is this for you? Are you going to take out ads or point out to people the linkage between Trump and Faso? You know, it's it's important in two different ways. Uh, the first is that, I mean, th- th- those tapes are disgusting. They're really offensive. And I do hear from people, and, you know, this is certainly how I feel, which is that, you know, this is our country. We're talking about the presidency. And it's sort of unimaginable that, Trump would be president. And, you know, you've got to put something above political party. In my district, people are really independent. People are making up their own minds. So the idea that you just sort of blindly, loyally follow the party lead is offensive. What he's doing right now, see if you can make sense of this. He says he supports Donald Trump, but isn't sure yet if he's going to vote for him. So, (laughs) so... So, so seriously, it's it's like you know what does that mean? Like he's writing him little letters. Like what what, what he's 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 carrying his suitcases. What does it mean to support but not vote for somebody? And I am hearing from people uh, across the political spectrum. Come on, you know, like if you if you say that about a bill, like okay, on the farm bill, I support it, but I'm not sure I'm going to vote for it. What, what what does that even mean? But do you think this race, really any congressional race, can come down to the national candidate? Because for so many years, we've heard that people will say things like, oh, I hate Congress, except my congressman is fine. You know, he's my local scoundrel. And local issues, you know, you probably asked, well, you tell me, I'm sure you're asked to talk more about things like taxes and fracking than you are like Donald Trump. No, in general, and we're running, I mean, I I really respect all of the voters and start with an assumption, which is, is true throughout our district, that people are not going to vote based on the top of the ticket. They really want to know who you are. 
like what you're going to do, what you're going to focus on. And so a lot of the, the, you know, real debate is absolutely, you mentioned fracking, but it's about water. I mean, this is something you're not hearing about on the national scene, but whether or not we have new oil barge anchorages in the Hudson River, that's a big, big deal here. The, the way in which it reflects this national moment is, you know, the, the House is on fire in terms of our, of our democracy. I'm, I'm quite confident Hillary Clinton's going to be our next president. Um, but that doesn't mean that we should turn away from the, the anger and the, you know, all across the spectrum, uh, people speaking up to say, we got to do some fundamental change. We got to change the way we fund elections. We got to do something about, you know, a handful of people, you know, in the presidential race, it's 157, but a handful of people who are really pulling the strings um, in, in politics. And I think a lot of Trump's success up till now reflects an expression of that, of that anger. So you uh, described John Faso as the ultimate insider. Now, I know that he would describe you as a literal outsider, someone who has just moved to the district. And I do think you uh, satisfy the legal requirements of residency, correct? Oh, yeah. In fact, I know you do. But here's what I want to ask you, and it's from this uh, excellent book by an esteemed academic. In fact, it's your (laughs) book, Corruption in America, from Benjamin Franklin's Snuffbox to Citizens United. Now, you talk about the bright line rules like residency requirements, and you make the distinction between, you trot out a couple Latin phrases, malum prohibitum, which is just that, a rule written on paper, and malum in say, which is a rule that becomes a cultural expectation. Now, even though you wrote about the residency requirements and rules that become cultural expectations, the same paragraph, I wasn't quite sure what you were saying uh, (laughs) related to this race. Are you saying that residency in the district should be a broad cultural requirement? Or are you saying that what you've done, as long as you satisfy the letter of the law, there should be no further question or problem with uh, the residency of someone running for Congress? Yeah. Um, you, you know, I'm, I moved to Dutchess. I lived there with my husband about a last March, a year and a half ago. Uh, what I hear from people in the district is that there are some things that really matter uh, in terms of the relationship to the district. It matters that I have been working with people on the fracking fight, on education, on corruption, you know, on kitchen table, grassroots up work, uh, you know, for a long time. It also matters that I I come from an area just a couple hours away. I grew up in a rural county um, uh, around uh, in in really in a dairy country. And that really, really matters to people. They're looking for somebody who understands their issues, is going to, you know, fight for them, raise up their issues and really be an advocate for the small scale ag that we need more of um, in this country. I, I know that isn't a direct answer to your question, but the the founders, the rules were really all about money and politics. And what they were concerned about is people buying seats, like buying representation. Uh, the outside money was the core of their concern in, in the constitutional provisions you're talking about. But um, we are flooded with New York City money in our race. Uh, there's been about 76% of the outside money, about $2.6 million already spent trying to turn me into a monster on television and in the mail uh, with super PAC spending. That's Paul Singer, Robert Mercer have both funded my opponent's super PACs. Um, these are guys who've each given $500,000 a piece. I want you to just think about that for a second. 
uh, a million dollars total from two hedge funders in the 19th congressional district. So the key thing that the founders were worried about in our constitution was outside money buying representation. And we see that outside money in our district in, you know, huge, huge, huge form. What have you learned from the practical side of actually running that you didn't realize as an academic? Um, you know, I think one of the things I've been to all 165 of the 165 towns in this district while running, talking to people. We do a lot of brewery visits uh, where we'll just say, you know, call a brewery a couple days in advance and say, can we have two hours that you don't usually have people there uh, and we'll invite folks. And sometimes three people show up and sometimes 70 people show up. But what I've learned is how hard it is to, and there's great local media coverage, but how so often if you show up in a town, um, because of the decline of local media, um, it's just hard for people to know that you're there. That's something that, um, you know, I don't know the solution to that, but I, uh, I hear and feel that more and more is that people are really hungry for candidates who are going to be everywhere. Um, but just how do you find out that uh, you're your Congress member or your candidate is in town is, is a real challenge. Zephyr Teachout, uh, Democratic candidate, 19th Congressional District in New York. Thanks for your time, Zephyr. Hey, it's wonderful to be on your show. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. John Faso is a former New York State Assemblyman. In fact, he was the minority leader of the Assembly. Hello, John Faso. Hi. Great to be with you. So I'm going to do something that maybe hasn't happened to you before. I'm going to tell you what my second question is, and keep that in mind when I ask you my first question. My (laughs) My second question is going to be, was that the wrong first question? Okay. But here's my first question. Will you be voting for Donald Trump? Um, I have said right from the start that I support our our ticket. Um, I clearly have dis- issued disagreements with Mr. Trump. Um, I've also said that uh, I would not be voting for Mrs. Clinton because I have significant policy differences with her. Uh, like many Americans, um, frankly, I'm not particularly pleased with the choice that we have in this election. And I'm going to make my decision as to who I vote for um, Probably on the day I go vote. Okay. So you may not be voting for Mr. Trump, but you will be, you will certainly not be voting for Mrs. Clinton. That's what you're saying. That is correct. Okay. Now, was that the wrong first question? Is not, is that not relevant to the voters of the 19th? It, it, well, uh, my experience is you never tell an interviewer that they ask the wrong question. Mm -hmm. So I'll leave that for your listeners to decide. But (laughs) the issues really in the 19th, I mean, I know the media has this fascination with the presidential race, and and I understand that. But uh, the bottom line for me is that I think most voters are are able to distinguish uh, between and among candidates for different offices. And they're going to make a decision in the presidential race. They'll make a decision for state legislature. They'll make a decision for Congress. And I think that uh, one doesn't necessarily dictate what they do in the other. I, I think that, look, I'm no more responsible for what Donald Trump's uh, statements have been than Zephyr Teachout is responsible for Mrs. Clinton's uh, email problems. So I think we the focus should be on what is the candidate for Congress going to do and what their agenda is. And everyone has a vote on November 8th uh, for different offices like president and in Congress. Uh, But whoever is elected to Congress representing the 19th district will probably cast 
oh, about 2,000 votes over the next two years on behalf of the people of the 19th district as their representative. And my argument has been is that I'm much more in sync with the views and values of the people of this district than my opponent. Well, I pressed Zephyr Teach out on the uh, issue of carpetbagging, and she even wrote about it in her book. Can you cite a stance she has or a position she's taken that is not just one you disagree with, but one that you feel demonstrates that she doesn't understand the 19th Congressional District? The, the national energy tax. She said she's in favor of the what she calls fee and dividend, which really is a, a massive new energy tax. Uh, on all ostensibly to deal with the problem of climate change. And number one, uh, the enactment of such a uh, plan, such a tax, would have a negligible, if, if any, effect on climate change. But number two, this would be devastating to people upstate who heat their homes with propane or natural gas, and some of them with wood, but propane, natural gas, they drive their cars many 50 or so miles each way to work, we all use electricity, much of which is generated with fossil fuels. So a energy tax like Ms. Teachout supports would be devastating to this district. We don't have a subway or a bus to get to work. Um, and uh, we don't have natural gas oftentimes in many places in this district to heat our homes. Ms. Teachout doesn't get it. She's a big government, far-left ideologue who uh, has a very... In fact, one of the debates I had, I said she has a grapes of wrath view of the economy. It's really very quaint and old-fashioned, but very dangerous. We, if we are going to grow at one and a half or one point three or one point six percent GDP every year, you know what? We're all going to be broke as a country. We've got to grow over three percent GDP, and the way to do that is to reform the tax code, to eliminate a lot of special interest things like ethanol subsidies and sugar subsidies and items like this. So uh, I've got some ideas in that regard. If your prescription is to eliminate sugar subsidies, ethanol subsidies, is there a subsidy enjoyed by the people of the 19th that you would uh, put up as a bargaining chip that you would be willing to lose for your uh, constituents in a way that someone from Iowa or Florida would probably not want to lose those subsidies for theirs? Well, I, I think the, the answer to the, your question is I would like a flatter, simpler tax code. And some people are going to win under that scenario, and, and, and some people uh, may not. Uh, but because some people, frank, frankly, now may enjoy the complexity of the system because they, they prosper under it. But that's not healthy for the country. So, for instance, I would like, for instance, any business, if they make an investment in capital equipment, tools, machinery, uh, vehicles, software, computers, if they make any investment like that for their business, they should be able to write 100% of it off in the year they make the investment. Not have the government pick and choose which type of investments can be depreciated faster or which type of investments are more um, desirable or not. Let the private sector economy throughout the entire economy make those decisions. And, you know, the American people and American entrepreneurs and ingenuity will come into the fore. Have the tax code be neutral about these kind of things. These are the things we have to do. And frankly, here's a real difference between myself and my opponent. I understand that the system is based on compromise. The founders didn't create a system which was a parliamentary system where the, once you had the majority, you come in and do whatever you wanted and get your agenda enacted. No, they, they set up deliberately a system of co-equal branches and checks and balances, and they made it cumbersome. The system requires compromise. 
Um, and I think that compromise is not a dirty word. In order to get things done in the political process in our government, you've got to be able to compromise. My opponent, uh, she exists in a far, far left fringe of her own party. And I think she'd never be able to compromise. Okay, if you're going to compromise, what are you going to give up? You're going to look your voters in the eyes and say, just like I'm asking, you know, Representative Steve King or Rod Blum of Iowa to give up uh, ethanol subsidies. Here's what we're going to give up. Well, uh, what I'm saying is that I think if, if we, we can work out the political differences between regions and between among different political factions through a system of compromise. But I'll tell you this, uh, one of the things you don't do before you go to the negotiating table, you don't lay your cards on the table. So that would be a mistake. But I think what I'm trying to do is lay out broad parameters for things that we should do to fix the tax code. Um, we've, so we've got, to, we've got to change the system and reform it. John Fasso, running, running for Congress. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. And now the spiel. Today, November 1st, All Saints Day. And since it's All Saints Day, we therefore cannot mention anyone who's running for office or commentating on anyone running for office or announcing their investigation into anyone running for office or questioning the decision to announce an investigation of anyone running for office. If politics were all left to all saints, we would have very few officials left. Then again, we'd have very few truck drivers, apothecaries, taxidermists, deacons, rabbis, or Wiccan priestesses either. Puppies. We would still have puppies. The James Comey investigation into emails, which appeared on Huma Abedin's laptop, continues. You know, a lot of people say, I use the cloud, or you got to back that up, up in the cloud. Not if you're a Clinton staffer. Save your money. Between WikiLeaks and the FBI, they'll get all your old stuff. Oh, I wish I had that picture of Jessica's Halloween costume when she was the squirrel. Hello, it's Julian Assange. I saw your text about Jessica's costume, John Podesta. Here it is. Don't click that link, John Podesta. So... Did Director Comey get credit for the service that he provides? Did he get thanks for the open manner in which he provides it? He did not. Well, by Donald Trump, he did. Greatest public servant ever. This is in contradiction to what Donald Trump was saying about Comey the day the FBI director announced his decision not to indict in July. Here he was entering Bill O'Reilly's no-spin zone. They really said she was guilty today. And then Trump tweeted soon thereabouts that the system is rigged. On the Democratic side, you have them praising the decision not to indict back then, but now they're livid that he has announced a new, vague new investigation. So the obvious point is made. Is this hypocrisy or what? On Morning Joe, this was Willie Geist. So there's terrible hypocrisy on both sides. This story, and I would argue this election, has brought out the worst in a lot of people. Oh, it's horrific. Hypocrisy. This is a common charge. You see it a lot in reporting on politics because A, hypocrisy is kind of common in politics, but B, the charge of hypocrisy needs no context. Hypocrisy is a charge that can be proved with an ipso facto juxtaposition of the same person saying contradictory things. But actually, that's contradiction. That's not hypocrisy. The definition of hypocrisy is saying one thing and then doing the other, espousing a set of beliefs living in contravention to those beliefs. I suppose you could argue that making contradictory statements, if the statements were about the character of someone else, can be seen as hypocrisy because your statement indicates your underlying belief in the person 
and then further statements could undermine that belief. But I don't really see much hypocrisy going on with all the squall around James Comey and his announcement. If on the one hand, some of these complainers said that Comey had wisdom that never failed or an inherent Solomonic demeanor, and then they went on to say he is rife with personal failings or he is marked by corruption or delusion, I think that would be hypocritical. More likely, it would be a confession about yourself that you got James Comey's decision-making ability wrong. But think about a football game. In the first quarter, you might yell at the ref because you think he blew a call against your team. Maybe he did. And in the second quarter, you might be pleased with the ref because he enforced a penalty on the other team. Does this make you a hypocrite? Well, if your original statement was, this ref can do no wrong, then yeah, you're kind of a hypocrite. But likely, that's not what you said. He got it right once, and then he got it wrong. Let's be clear, there are a couple of major players in all this who didn't rejoice one day and then criticize the next, like the White House stood by Comey back in July. They stand by him now. They say he's doing his job as he sees it. And also the Justice Department. There were forces within the Justice Department who thought not indicting back in July was right, but also criticized him for holding the press conference. You don't need to do that. Just don't indict. There's no need for extra chatter in the name of openness. And those same people who didn't think he should have a press conference then didn't think he should make this quasi-public announcement now. They're certainly not hypocritical. The last thing to note about this is let's say you're upset by Comey's decision. Let's say you're Harry Reid who thinks that he may have violated the Hatch Act. Let's say you're the New York Daily News who calls on him to resign. Or maybe you're just a Clinton supporter who thinks that his decision, his announcement, imperils her election. Well, do this. Make a decision matrix. Four boxes. Across the top, you have Hillary wins. And then the next box, Hillary loses. And then down the side, label your boxes. Comey announces his investigation before the election. And Comey keeps his investigation to himself until after. Right now, you're staring at the box that says Comey announces, which is what he did, and Hillary loses. And you're really worried about that box. Should that come to pass? Yeah, you have the right to be upset. But think about the more likely column. Think about the Hillary wins column. If Hillary wins, which is still very, very likely, and Comey kept the investigation to himself, how bad would that be for the presidency and the republic once Hillary Clinton is sworn in? This is against a backdrop of charges of stolen elections, and then you have this announcement that's revealed after election day. A large percentage of Americans would feel betrayed. Therefore, the box of Hillary wins and Comey announces beforehand, that's actually the best outcome, if, of course, Hillary wins. The best outcome would have been no private server at all, private server which you needed so you'd keep your yoga lessons from the prying eyes of FOIA requests, or better yet, no Anthony Weiner texts, or even no Anthony Weiner. But you know what? I cannot say that. I have derived so much delight in Carlos Danger and his selfie stick that to wish him out of existence well, that would indeed be hypocritical. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson's patron saint is Blessed Columbia of Riti. She is the patron saint against sorcerers. Just producer Chris Barube's patron saint is Saint Drogo, patron of coffee houses, mute persons, and cattle. Executive producer of Slate Podcast Steve Lichtai's patron saint is St. Friard, patron saint against the fear of wasps. 
Andy Bauer is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. His patron saint is St. Magnus of Fusin, also the patron against caterpillars. The gist, our patron saint is Isidore of Seville, who, as patron saint of the internet, must also be the patron saint of people who were taken in by weird lists of patron saints on the internet. Umperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>